Hello, and welcome to The Mummer's Farce, the podcast about the visual productions of HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm Kate Berry. I'm Dan Solberg. And today we're having the second of our three spring break episodes. Spring break? Yeah, no, it's there's still snow here, so <laughs> we are not feeling the spring break, but we are feeling the Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, today we're going to be talking about the best and worst adaptations from the book. So I think we're mostly talking narrative adaptations. Yeah. I don't know if you have something else in mind. No. I don't know what that would be. <laughs> it's, it's very. This is very plot and story focused. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I thought it would be more fun to start with things we liked the best because it's more fun to complain. What sort of changes did they make from the text that you thought really worked in the episodes? Well, I've, I've got a few here, so I'll just kind of go down some of them. And this is one that I start out with one that I mentioned last week, which was the death of Ygritte. Mm-hmm. And essentially the introduction of the Ollie character in general, a character that does not exist in the books, but acts as a really effective surrogate for people who are living in the north and that there would be this animosity between them and the wildlings that is longstanding that Ollie's parents get killed by the wildlings, he's brought to the wall, becomes a member of the Night's Watch, and then at the heeding of Sam, you know, standing up in fight during the battle for Castle Black, he ends up shooting an arrow at Egret. John is down there and witnesses this firsthand as they were having this kind of standoff anyway. And Ollie gives this kind of like nice nod and mm-hmm. John is just like runs to to Egret in that instance. And, you know, in the in the books, Ollie doesn't exist, so all the kind of animosity that is between the northerners and the wildlings is more just conveyed in the night's watch who mm-hmm. has been fighting them forever and john also does not see egret die he goes around after the battle and finds her essentially she's been shot doesn't know it's possible that he shot the arrow you know who's to say mm-hmm. it's, it was sort of the the mix of battle and i think in general i like the way that they play up the romance angle and the sentimentality of all of the John and Ygritte scenes in the show, I think even the previous seasons, I think they do that even better than the books do. And uh, so to have that scene be sort of the finale, I thought was uh, very well done. Yeah, no, I think so too. I think so too. And gives her a little bit more of a fitting end for as much, I think she was a beloved character for the audience. And so she gets she gets to tell John that he knows nothing one more time. It's the die on screen. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, how about you? One of the things, and I'm sort of surprised at myself for saying this, but I think that the idea to change Jane Poole for Sansa Mm. back at Winterfell with Ramsay was probably a good change. Mm. That is not to say that I think the way things were filmed where it was handled perfectly, but I understand that Sansa sort of helping Littlefinger plot in the veil does not make for a good good TV, Mm -hmm. and that no one wanted to see a fake Arya or Sansa, I think that on screen that would have worked, it wouldn't have worked very well. That it's sort of through text that you could be like, who is this girl? We know it's not Arya, but who is it? But it would be very clear if we saw her face that it was not Arya, it was not Sansa. So I think that that did a pretty good job of sort of cleaning things up and pulling Sansa back into the main action. Yeah. The only thing I, you might not like it because it may, it sort of leads to Littlefinger's downfall. And I know he's <laughs> one of your favorites. <laughs> well, I mean, I would appreciate, I appreciate certainly the streamlining, and I think we mentioned this when we covered some of these episodes leading up to this, the end of the season where after Littlefinger pushes Lysa in and what happens afterwards, there's a lot of like veil politics that 
we don't really need to see it. And in fact, the whole point of it in the book seems that it's supposed to be complicated on purpose. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, how would you film that? Honestly, it's mm -hmm. just, it, it seems like a mess. And so rather than doing that and getting into Sansa material that hasn't really been written yet, they fit Sansa into this other character and more or less left the veil behind. And I think I, I would agree that largely for the best, not totally for the best, but largely for the mm -hmm. best. Yeah. Yeah. It's not perfect, but it certainly makes sense. What's something else you liked? I liked the scene in the Great Pit of Daznak with Daenerys and the involvement that they had with Jorah in this, I think was more direct. And I just thought it was more effectively more effective than the, the way it was written in the books to have Jorah in the fight, put some real stakes into it. So it's less of just like, these battles going on and Danny is sort of you know disgusted by it but she doesn't know anybody in the books they have Tyrion and Penny who's not in the show at all do this sort of jousting thing and Danny stops what is supposed to be then a, a, a lion's lion slaughter coming in where they where they would kill Tyrion and Penny and that's not a Tyrion perspective that's a Danny perspective chapter and so we don't see hear about that from their perspective until much afterwards and then when Drogon comes in, in the books, Drogon flies in seemingly just because he's hungry. And he's just like, oh, hey, you guys are killing animals in here? Cool. <laughs> and it just sort of causes a huge ruckus because the dragon flies into the, the stadium, essentially. And in the show, it's much more like this ESP connection that Danny has with Drogon where she's in danger. She closes her eyes and looks up. And then Drogon appears and sort of saves the day. Mm -hmm. So, I I quite liked that. I you know the Hisdar, uh, Sons of the Harpy, <laughs> whatever weird who's killing why for what reason. Mm -hmm. That aside, the 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 Danny plot line as far as she and Drogon and Jorah are concerned, I think is is really good. Yeah, and better than the books. Yeah, I'm so torn because on one hand I'm I'm glad that Tyrion has already met Danny in the show. But what we've said over and over is that Tyrion and maybe just Peter Dinklage has so little to do now that he has. And mm -hmm. so I'm on one hand, I'm glad they made the change. I just don't know that they made the right change. Yeah. So I think you're right that Drogon and Danny and Jorah have something better going on. Tyrion, that's less true, although I don't know that I would have liked to see him and Penny hanging out either. Yeah. I just wish they had come up with like a third option. Yeah, they I think it's that was just one of those plot lines where they decided to move it so quickly. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, how do you how do you make this move this fast? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's it's definitely Tyrion feels like one of those corners that they cut. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else that you think was a really good change? The only other one that really stands out to me, other than that we actually get to see Hardhome, I think, is interesting. Yeah. Is just John's not on that trip in the books, so that's neat. The other one that I can think of that I wouldn't necessarily thought as like a book loyalist that I was going to like this, but the Brienne versus the Hound fight. Yeah. Because they just they just execute on it so well, and that this is what gets the Hound injured to the point where Arya leaves him behind. And Brienne and Arya have this connection at the beginning where they're sort of respecting one another. And, and that's paid off later in season seven when they finally do get back, get back together. And the, the fight itself is brutal and this, this slugfest brawl. I, I, th I thought that was, that was really well done. And, you know, we don't have to get into all the biter and roars and all <laughs> this kind of stuff that they more or less skip over. And 
if they're not going to get into all the like muck of the riverlands and all that kind of stuff, then I think this is a nice clean way of streamlining that whole thing. I agree. I agree. What about you? You got any other good ones or are we ready to move on? I to think the I'm bad? probably ready to move on to the bad. I assume that everyone knows some of the ones that I'm going to say. So I'm going to start with what I hope is a surprise. Mm-hmm. Craster's Keep. Yeah. I think we saw too much of <laughs> Craster's <laughs> Keep. And this was a, this was one of those things from this Michelle McLaren episodes that we were talking about last mm-hmm. time. Where it's like these episodes are awesome and lovely and and like so well shot, but they made her go shoot have, have to shoot Craster's Keep. I mean, and it's it's effective. You're mm-hmm. like, this is the worst place in the world, yeah. right? But I don't want to go to the worst place in the world. And especially, it was done in the books. You didn't need to be there, right? right? It just was sort of obvious that it had it was bad. But we spent so much time there, and even created new characters. And I and I was just like, I don't, I don't need all of this. So that was that was something that I felt was they didn't need to invest so much into Craster's Keep. Yes, I definitely have Craster's Keep written on here. <laughs> what What else do you think was a misstep? Well, I think this is a mixed bag, but casting the kindly man as Jockin, mm-hmm. the character seemed to complicate what the house of black and white is and how it just like the mythology of the whole thing it was just very inconsistent and it was a little hard to get a grasp on what's really going on there because it it, it was in conflict with the idea that this is actually jock and hagar mm-hmm. and somebody who has maintained their identity despite all of this stuff and is this recognizable character that would have in theory also like switched back to a face that seemingly was just a face that he was wearing before but now he's wearing it all the time right and it, you could theorize that like oh this is just what Arya is seeing or something like that but again there's a number of instances particularly in season six where they seem to be saying like no this is the actual person right and it, it's sort of just you want to throw your hands up in the air. That he's kept some sort of identity and that he's also rooting for Arya to keep some sort of identity, mm-hmm. which flies in the face of everything that we know about them. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right about that. It will surprise no one that I feel like Dorne could have been done differently. <laughs> um, I like the Marcella plot with trying to get her crowned and then also having Prince Doran being a secret Targaryen loyalist. There's some. In- I don't know that they needed to keep all of it, but I wish they had kept some of it because it makes... It just we, we've talked about that the, the sand snakes and I think Prince Ran also just do not get what they deserve. They look really incompetent yeah. and pretty stupid, and I I don't like either of those things. So it all kind of goes south in season five, mm-hmm. and then the way they wrap it up and see at the start of season six is just like insult to injury. And now by season seven, it is actually totally wrapped all, up. All gone. Uh, Nim and Obara have been killed by Euron Greyjoy, and Cersei has poisoned. Tyene and Alaria is going to watch her die and rot. And yeah. so... And we probably won't see them again. Yeah, that's done. And yeah. so I just felt it had more interesting things to do. Or at least something. Yeah. Also, um, a vehicle... I mean, I guess the show by now, many of the houses are being led by women. But at least in the book, this is a very women-forward plot line. Right. And I liked that. And it was, as far as Westeros is concerned, somewhere that is a, a, a native place for actors of color to be cast mm-hmm. um and so then to just be like i don't know they, they're all dead yeah so let's just get rid of them as fast as possible oberon was so had so much promise and and delivered yeah yeah uh, season four as far as dorn was concerned was pretty rad <laughs> and then he seems to have been the coolest person who was ever from dorn because everyone else kind of sucks mm-hmm. what else 
<laughs> yeah, we, there feel like there's maybe more to talk about <laughs> on this side of things. The King's Moot yeah. and Euron's characterization as far as season six goes. You know, I don't think The King's Moot is bad. It's just a letdown if we're talking about adaptation and really what is one of my favorite scenes from A Feast for Crows then is just kind of a middling scene. Mm-hmm. Euron's emergence in season six, season six, right, is pretty underwhelming. He has no charisma and he wears the same clothes as everybody else mm-hmm. and he's a stick in the mud. Yeah. And he's he's not cool in the least and he's supposed to be very cool and dangerous and evil. And we don't get to see his retinue or his crazy ship. I mm-hmm. mean, we get to see we in season 7, they've changed him up a little bit, but yeah. we don't get the idea that like no, this is a this is a dude you should be really scared of. Yeah, they've they've scaled him back e- even though they've given him a lot more character in season 7, mm-hmm. they have scaled back some of the other stuff that that's supposed to be going on with him. Yeah. So, do you a bit of a letdown. wish that they had kept Victorian or do you care about that? Not really. I think they've I think they've actually done an okay job of adapting some of Victorian's traits into other characters. Mm-hmm. Things like, well, we don't quite know where Victorian is exactly going to go, but in the books right now, he has a demon hand, which is pretty <laughs> interesting, which is kind of like Jorah has grayscale in his hand, but that's really more of a John Connington adaptation. Anyway, so a little bit of Victorian has gone into Asha, or mm-hmm. Yara, rather, and a little bit has gone into Euron, and I think it ends up being all right. Yeah, yeah. I uh, Got anything else? Yeah, the only, and it's not it's not a big deal, but Quaithe... I think that mm. if they were going to show her in Karth, they should have kept her. And if they weren't going to keep her, then they shouldn't have showed her. Yeah. So she's the one with the mask and she and she gives Danny some advice. She shows up a lot in the books and she seems to be maybe prodding Danny to go towards a shy. It's not it's not totally clear, mm-hmm. but she's also full of prophecy. They've cut out a lot of prophecy in in the show, but I guess I just I always thought that she was somehow going to come back she's maybe she was the first kinvara mm. that she was someone who sort of hyped but then it never returns they didn't bring back kinvara did they no no they didn't even bring her back <laughs> so yeah i don't i i don't know i think that that's probably no one cares other than me but yeah. it seems like if if they if they thought they were going to use her then they should have used her and if not then what was the point of having her there mm. i would also say jamie's whole direction Mm-hmm. across these three seasons really goes in circles and nowhere and it's again compared to in the books where there's a much clearer arc as to what's happening with Jamie it's it's a it's a straight line towards sort of like oh i've been kind of being a bad guy the whole time i'm going to try and be a good guy and you know struggle with this and be better to myself and and try and uh, be be a better person and Cersei is very clearly pushing him away and calling him an idiot and all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff, which we don't even get to in these three seasons. That doesn't happen until like the end of season seven. Right. And it's like, finally, things are back on, on the track with Jamie. And it feels like season five, they really lost their way with Jamie by sending him to Dorne and mm-hmm. having that be our angle in. It makes sense to me that that's what they would do with that they want to show Dorne we have to have Jamie and Braun go down there I, I get it but 
it also puts him so far off track mm-hmm. that then they have to keep coming with these creative ways of making the story work with Jamie's character. Because with that, they have him basically fighting to be Marcella's father, mm-hmm. which brings him closer to Cersei. And that you're like, oh, maybe he can redeem himself by having like a, a more normal, normal relationship with his sister, which mm-hmm. is an insane thing to say. But they got him, instead of realizing, I think that he needs to put physical and emotional distance between himself and his family, that he's trying to sort of get everyone back for yeah. at least a season and a half, which is way off the books. Yeah. And then they, they, they end up doing the River Run stuff, but so much because the story has Butterfly affected away from the book story, the River Run plot has a much different impact. Mm-hmm. And it still even then returns with him coming back to King's Landing, seemingly thinking that he's going to be like, chummy with Cersei or whatever that's the whole reason he wanted to get back is what he tells Edmure anyway and it just so happens that Cersei is blown up the sept and maybe he feels differently about it but that wasn't what he was intending to have be the case right I've got a, a couple things that I think are just big omissions from the ad- from the TV adaptation and I think with mixed results I think we dropped Quentin Martell mm-hmm. and that's fine <laughs> yeah that was one of those characters in a dance with dance of dragons dance with dragons the fifth book that in a in a two book set that had so many new characters and plots introduced to see quentin with his whole troop was like these guys are losers Mm -hmm. and ends up going nowhere yeah and so great we don't need it you (laughs) know right if we're not gonna do the whole like dornish conspiracy to put Targaryen's back on the throne and we super don't need it. Mm -hmm. The other one is Varys. And essentially what is also the the exclusion of the young griff, fake Aegon, presumably fake Aegon, uh, John Connington plotline, which in some ways I think is adapted well. Again, they they take John Connington's grayscaled hand and give that to Jorah. I think that's a smart move. This basically tells us as book readers that fake Aegon is fake Aegon and this isn't going anywhere mm-hmm. it's too bad we don't get to have a character named young griff which is one of my favorite names in the whole <laughs> story and but also I think more to the point of what how this uh sort of reverberates within the tv show is Varys's motivations yeah which are very much seemingly tied to young griff and John Connington and Illyrio Mopatis and this sort of secret like new Blackfire rebellion that's supposed to be going on that is perhaps a little too mired in the complicated Targaryen backstory that happens prior to the show even starting, like decades and hundreds of years mm-hmm. before the, pro- the show starting, that I get why they wouldn't go that route. But it makes Varys a far less complicated character. And I think that I that was hard for me to reconcile as a book reader because I, I didn't feel that I could trust his allegiance to Daenerys, mm-hmm. that I'm like, what is he trying to get out of this? And now they've, I think, transitioned to, no, he's absolutely loyal to Daenerys. He's maybe a little bit worried that she'll turn into her father. Yeah. But in his support for young Griff comes from not this, like, I just want what's best for the realm. I care for the small folk, which doesn't fit him, I think, as well as I help the friends who helped me when I was a, yeah. a starving kid in the streets. Right. And that makes a lot more sense for his character than, like, I've only ever cared about the people. Right. Which, you know, because essentially... In the books, they send Daenerys and Viserys away with 
call Drogo kind of to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, let's never see them seemingly. Again, we, we don't have a resolution on a lot of this stuff, so we don't quite know what George was thinking with that. But the way that Varys has been at the end of the final book that has been written, you know, killing Kevin and Pycelle and talking about young Griff and that seemingly paving the way for him to come to King's Landing. Unless this is another sort of secret thing where like, well, we're going to have young Griff sort of clear out the rabble and then for Daenerys to come in. I don't know if it's going that way or not. We can't say, I guess, but. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Another... Uh, I'm not sure if it was a it was a, a great adaptation. So we don't have any Lady Stoneheart, but I think that Arya basically gets all the Freys anyway. In this last season, she killed Walder Frey's two sons, and then and then slits his throat, and then in the beginning of season seven, she'll kill basically everyone else. The thing that's very satisfying, mm-hmm. and it's like it's it's I guess that plot line is still happening. If I could critique it at all, it's just that. Lady Stoneheart represents revenge gone wrong. Mm-hmm. That, and it starts to hurt people that we like, like Brienne and Pod. Arya does it in a way that seems gruesome, but uncomplicated. That mm-hmm. she only gets the right people who are still bragging about how they've killed her family. And she doesn't kill any of the wrong people. Yeah. And there's no, there's not a tension there that like, maybe revenge is bad, guys. I feel like when she leaves, I remember cheering when she when she sort of saunters out of the of the dining hall. And I think that it really changes the the note that when with Lady Stoneheart, you're like, oh, Catelyn's gotten really dark and she cannot yeah. see beyond her own pain. And I think in the show, we're like, great, can't see bond behind your own or beyond your own pain. Awesome. Yeah. Right. And and that I mean, it's cool that the, the plot line still happens, but it's definitely in a different light. Yeah, I, the, I think the, the adaptation of the, of the book here is in general a streamlined narrative. And there are certain aspects of the book that are perhaps overcomplicated or don't make sense to shoot in any way. Mm-hmm. That's where the streamlining tends to benefit. In other ways, like you're talking about with Lady Stoneheart and a number of other things that we've just mentioned, really, the streamlining tends to simplify an otherwise complex issue down to like, oh, I kill you, you're bad. Mm-hmm. And oh, we're cheer for you because you're the hero character. So sometimes, yeah, sometimes it just seems like it works better than others. And I think when they seem to be getting further away from established book material, they have a harder time with that because it's like they're just streamlining the bullet points that they have been given instead of having like, oh, well, here's this crazy political narrative. How can we sort of pare this down? Often that's like, okay, well, there's still a, especially for book readers, a richness to the basic decisions that we can say like, this, you're not saying all this complex stuff isn't happening, but we can still have room to imagine it going on because you haven't sort of done something that just sort of cuts that off outright. Mm-hmm. But when they don't have the book material, it doesn't feel like that richness is there. Yeah. It feels, I think John and Sansa are a good example that why are people acting this way? Or, or Arya and Sansa as well, the, mm-hmm. that it felt like it was without motivation because book, uh, at least for me, I couldn't even imagine a possible reason yeah. because there is no material that they're right. adapting from. So, yeah, <laughs> the sword cuts two ways. <laughs> but I, I think that's, that's where we've got, where we're going to land with uh, our adaptation notes here. Mummersfarce.libsen.com for all of our podcasts. The Mummers Farce Pod on Twitter, you can follow us. We're also on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. And you can send us an email at themummersfarcepodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we've got a fun one. We're going to talk about our favorite travel companions, 
and who has the best touring schedule as if they're all like these bands or whatever so that should be a fun one and that'll be our our final episode of our spring break holiday package here so i'll see you next week hang 10 dan (laughs) i don't have another see you kate Thank you.